I was twenty when it happened. It was a dark autumn night on the banks of the River Elbe, the coal fires of Hamburg's stolid and crumbling tenements adding their chemical tang to the evening's damp mist. I'd been handed my match ticket as we left Feldstrasse U-Bahn station and then headed up the stairs in a one-way throng. Everyone around me was singing, stamping and letting fall emptied cans of Holston. They rattled percussively on the walkways. Through the turnstiles with a creak, mumbled thanks, a drop of fag ash and half a ripped ticket pushed back. Then up the dozen steps and into the Nordkurve, just as Hans Alba's Auf der Reeperbahn started to splutter and crackle through the megaphone speakers fixed to the overhanging roof of the main stand and the stanchions. Smoke and steam rose from the crowd, thousands of shining eyes turning towards the dew-speckled field as kickoff grew near. Someone brought me a bratwurst with a ripple of sweet mustard along its glistening top edge and a foaming beer in a plastic glass. Just then, the teams ran out, a roar went up, a floodlight failed and everybody laughed. I laughed too, so loud I almost spat out some sausage. So this is football, I thought. And everything changed. That was an extract from the brand new, wonderful book, Square Peg Round Ball, Football, TV and Me, by Ned Bolting. Published by Bloomsbury, priced at fourteen ninety nine, and available from the When Saturday Comes shop and other booksellers. It's 11.30 on 1FM and Brian Deacon has the news. The first season of the new English Premier League gets underway tomorrow. The Football Association says the new league will raise the standard of the game, but Graham Kelly, the FA's chief executive, admits in some ways little has changed. Sadly, there's very little different on day one tomorrow, but we are moving towards a smaller first division, a smaller top division, should I say, and this will mean better preparation for the England team, less wear and tear on the players. We've had all the publicity about the new television contracts. There'll be a lot of football available to be seen. It'll bring much needed money into the game and it'll provide massive exposure for the game. Andy Lyons from the football magazine when the Saturday comes says fans are worried. The future of English football is going to lie more and more with the elite few clubs where the the, the money and the playing talent is increasingly concentrated, which can't be a good thing for the development of English football. 1FM News, back at one o'clock. That's Ark Welder and Favour. Awestruck to hear Andy Lyons of When Saturday Comes on the news. Really taken aback by that. I've got the latest issue of When Saturday Comes to read on the way to the match tomorrow. This is Messiah. Welcome to When Saturday Comes, the half-decent podcast that strikes the ball through a forest of legs and beyond a hapless goalkeeper. I'm Daniel Gray and this is part one of two special editions of the podcast marking When Saturday Comes magazine reaching its 400th issue. In this episode, you'll be hearing about the early days of the magazine from those who were there, plus insights from more than a dozen When Saturday Comes writers and staff members. If you've never listened to our regular podcast, please give it a go, and do consider joining our supporters club at patreon.com slash Comes. Anyway, that's quite enough from me. Time to hit play. First up, When Saturday Comes editor Andy Lyons, writer Roger Titford, and then columnist Harry Pearson and perceptions of football supporters in 1986, the year the magazine began. Well, the image of football fans at the time in the mid-80s really was, was pretty terrible. I think anyone who didn't follow football might think that football fans were, were hooligans because that was the, the broader perception of where they tended to be written about. Um, and the government of the day saw football as, uh, the expression was at the time, as a, 
law and order issue, wanting to introduce ID cards for fans, which did, which did get passed as a law eventually, then the wake of Hillsborough a few years later it was dropped. And there were plenty of things wrong with football. I mean, grounds are often in a dilapidated state and there's a problem with violence, though not to the extent it's sometimes portrayed, and of course racism in crowds. And there had been various problems with English fans abroad, with clubs and with the national team. So there was a general sense of pervasive decline. Somewhere between a social enemy and a national disgrace, by and large. It was the era of the ID cards where effectively you'd need a licence to go and watch a football match. Uh, I think the fences were, were going up then. To go to a match would seem to put yourself at risk. I think probably just at the moment that Andy and Mike were putting When Saturday Comes together for the first time, I went to watch Reading play at Elm Park, leaving a very glittering do at Park Lane in London, you know, full of beautiful women and free food and drink, to run to Paddington to get the train to Elm Park and watch Reading beat Rotherham 2-1 in front of 5,000 people as Martin Hicks got his jaw broken and then race back to catch the embers of the party in the Dorchester or whatever and being my sanity being very seriously questioned by uh, the people who said, well, where have you been for the last four or five hours? So, yeah, madness. American football was going to be the thing, certainly in London, I think, at that time. You know, if someone said to you on Saturday night, what have you been doing today? And you said, I've been to a football match. People are often actively hostile, accusing you of being a misogynist and a racist and violent. You know, their the reaction was actually, it was all, all, all people looked at you kind of askance as if you just said, well, I, I'm, I've, just been, I've just been covering the war in the Lebanon or something like that. You know, so I think there was a really negative perception. There were lots of people who, I mean, people didn't, now, nowadays it's hard to meet anyone who doesn't profess some love for the game or, or to support a team. But then I would, it seemed like the majority of people that you met well, I say we're actively antagonistic towards football. So, yeah, I mean, things have changed hugely since then. Next, Andy Lyons and Mike Tisher, now news editor at Guardian Australia, on the origins and early days of When Saturday Comes. Uh, well, the idea developed when we were working together, uh, Mike Tisher and myself in the record shop, our price records in Kensington High Street, now a sex shop, uh, in 1985. Um, in down moments, when we were, we were standing behind the counter, we'd ask each other questions about football. Um, though we'd stopped working together by the time the first issue came out, but by then we were living in the same house with a couple of other people. Um, I remember we had a stock take on the night of Heysel, um, so we couldn't see the game. But the manager of the shop had a radio, and he was following what was going on. I remember him coming around and saying that people had died, and you know that was that, that was going to be the end for English clubs in Europe. I remember I listened to the end of the game on the radio when I got home, so I didn't have a TV at the time, and that was. May 1985, which was 10 months before the first WC appeared. So the idea obviously gestated for quite a while. We started talking about football that, and quickly became clear that he had an extremely extensive knowledge of it and much greater than mine, in fact, and a very interesting and funny and engaging view on it. So we, we really hit it off when we started found that we were both interested in football and interested in the same kind of things about football. So we spent a lot of time talking about it and we shared a house together. We were housemates and I suppose in about the beginning of 1986, I'd been doing this music fanzine, which was kind of okay, but not, you know, not really going anywhere. And I thought maybe it'd be fun to write about football. I just can't, honestly can't remember the 
why what if there was any particular you know there wasn't like a moment when I thought we must do this but I thought maybe it'd be fun to do a sort of just like put out something about football I, I guess I got used to just writing stuff and putting it down on paper and sending it to a print local little printer and who used to print fanzines in those days and then would come back all the sheets of paper and you'd sort of have a magazine it was kind of sort of knew what to do <laughs> in a, at the very most at the most basic level and so we did well, really, the idea was to, was just to write about the sort of things that football fans would be likely to talk about. So, a conversation you might have before or after a game, um, some funny stuff, some serious. You know, that there wasn't really there, at the time there were kids' magazines, which were fine, like shoot and match, and there were one or two fairly bland um, magazines aimed for adults. There wasn't really anything that um, was kind of a, talking about football in the in the way that that we did, and we were kind of he- quite heavily influenced by. Um, the music, weekly music press, Enemy and Melody Maker in particular. Um, and I suppose we wanted to show that a whole range of people followed football. You could be part of, which had been part of, of popular culture in the UK, you know, for 100 years. And you could be a football fan and interested in other things or other things that fed into football, like um, football culture, like politics and music. And there was a music zine culture at the time as well. Um, WC was an offshoot of a music zine that Mike had done. 1986, approximately 10 years on from punk amongst people who were maybe a bit too young to have, to have gotten directly involved in punk at the time. There was a wave of indie bands in the mid-80s that referencing punk to some extent. We became part of a, a broader zine subculture, really. One or two zines that we hadn't known about had started before we did, like City Gent, Bradford City, one which is still going. But I should stress, though, really, that really we didn't have big ambitions. We had no expectation this would amount to something. I remember the first few issues each time I thought, God, we've done another one. That's five now or that's seven, you know. I recall doing an interview early on with somebody from Time Out and they asked, where do you see yourself in five years? And I honestly thought probably back in a shop or an office. We had absolutely no plans beyond just doing one copy of it. That was all, oh, not one copy, like there were a few hundred copies, but um, just do something and see what happens. Like we weren't thinking, it wasn't like a career. I wasn't thinking about my life ahead at that point, really. I was in my, we were both in our early 20s and just sort of living from day to day and definitely not thinking about journalism or the magazine or anything as, as like lasting more than for the, for the next issue. So we just did one and then see what happens and not really, we had no intentions whatsoever really, except just to get some stuff off our chest and for our own amusement more than anything. The early issues were laid out by hand with type text and a lot of photos taken from football annuals and in a lot of cases we didn't bother to, to sort of find find out about things like copyrights and stuff and um, early issues were stapled together there was a printer involved uh, martin lacy who did a zine himself for wheel stunt and he went on to print several club zines um, mike sent a copy of the first issue to the guardian is given a mention on the saturday column really at this point it was just a spin-off of his music zine he was given a mention on the saturday column of the guardian and we had like 100 orders the following week so we had to do a, a, a reprint or a re-photocopy and put up the cover price actually from 15p to 20p so capitalists from the start um so the rare ones are the 15p cover copies i don't have one of those because we sold all but one and then we used that one to make the second batch of copies so i bid on one on ebay last year but got outbid i think it went for about five pound fifty or something um the running man graphic came from a folder where you could get you could get of clip art you know graphic stuff things that images that are out of copyright could be used to make zines or printed ephemera various kinds it was a from a 19th century advert for the the people newspaper in the specifics some of it looks really terrible <laughs> i mean partly obviously from the sort of production point of view it was just all over the shop you know it was 
had we had no idea what we were doing. You know, it was based on a you know it was written on a typewriter first initially, so we couldn't. There, there was not that much you could do about that. But you know, the columns were all in different sizes, and the typefaces were all different, and all that sort of stuff. Um, so initially, I mean, it was sold through the post. We gradually started to take subscriptions. The first few issues were bi-monthly, then once every six weeks, and it didn't become a monthly for a while. And um, we couldn't really get into Debate Smith till it was monthly. So I don't know, it's probably 1988. And also, we started to sell copies in Sports Pages Bookshop, which was a new shop in central London that specialised in sports, and they started to take a lot of zines and became a, an important place for people to pick up um, the various club zines. Um, and people started to send articles in. Um, Archie McGregor, who went on to do the Absolute Game Scottish scene, had one of our early articles sent in from outside about ranking Scottish Premier League managers according to Downus, which I remember um, John Peel mentioning. Somebody sent us a tape of John Peel reading bits out from the third issue, and he, well, that was one of the things he, he referred to. And he, he read out something I'd written as well, and I thought, blimey. Um, so the, uh, the name came from, it was a song by The Undertones, which wasn't about football. Um, that is Mike's idea. I specifically remember, which Mike doesn't remember, because we were living in the same house by this point. Him coming down, sitting in the kitchen table, him coming downstairs and saying, "This this thing we should call it when Saturday comes." And he doesn't remember that, but I, I, I've got a distinct re- recollection of him doing that. Never really actually loved it as a name, actually. Once I'd chosen it, but it was too late after that. <laughs> I don't know, and it obviously also had the drawback that it was someone else's work so we could never copyright it or anything and it's, uh, I, don't, I don't i don't hate it or anything i don't feel embarrassed about it but it was obviously stolen from someone else's idea and um, they've never complained about it in fact i think um they mickey bradley who runs a, does write a lot of radio and dairy now who's in the undertone still has made favorable references to the magazine in the past so i don't think they were cross about it but um yeah we had no intention of stealing or piggybacking on them or anything it was just kind of because i like i said we didn't really expect to be still here talking about it all these years later but yeah i mean i love the band so i don't mind having that connection with them but we've sub- subsequently found out there is also a poem about football called when saturday comes from the early 1970s and i wonder whether that title perhaps it, it, the title was something that was borrowed by the undertones um guy who wrote the there somewhere but that's where he got the the, the name from i don't know after a while we hooked up with, fortunately for us, I mean, by chance, they stumbled across us and we hooked up with a proper publisher who published like real, actually quite sort of high production values magazines <laughs> and they allowed us to use their, use their um, get in, in contact with the people who printed their magazines and they printed it for us um, and we typeset it in the old-fashioned, what now seems like very old-fashioned ways without using computers and stuff. Uh, so it's sort of looked a bit more professional then but also we had to learn how to do stuff quite quickly and there was we all our mistakes are there to see on the page in the early editions so it wasn't great um i'm not proud of any of the i don't think anyone would ever use it as a a template for how to design or run a magazine but um i don't think it really mattered because people didn't care that much i mean a few people wrote to us and said you should do it this way and that way and they were almost certainly right, but most readers um, weren't really buying it for those reasons. It was a fanzine, and fanzines were like that. So, and that was part of the part of the appeal of them in a way that they were they were not professionally produced, and very obviously not. And the people who ran them weren't weren't doing weren't producing them to you know make money or build a career or anything like that. And that was that was what people liked. I think they were they were just like heartfelt and genuine and 
they were the, the people who did them made a connection with their readers like in that way. Many readers of When Saturday Comes would go on to write in its pages. Here are some of them on discovering the magazine for the first time. Q future writers Archie McGregor and Harry Pearson and long-time WSC illustrator Tim Bradford. I saw this column in The Guardian saying, oh, this this new uh, football fanzine's just been launched when Saturday comes. And I mean, I straight away um, sent off, um, you know, I probably was a check or a postal order to get a copy and I was just totally you know besotted by it um and and like many others um you know when Saturday comes was the starting point and um it inspired me to go and then set up my own on Scottish football called called the absolute game so that was obviously March 1986 and and the absolute game launched in January 87 um I wasn't, um, you know, I, I can't say I was a hardcore punk, but, uh, you know, When Saturday Comes was a bit like the Sex Pistols on the Bill Grundy show. You know, it was just a revelation and, you know, reading about football the way you wanted it to be written by by fans and people with a, a real love for the game rather than just, oh, well, I suppose I have to go and interview this player or... Here's, here's something else about my own opinion on the game that um, you know you're just going to have to read, which was you know the the media staple at the time. I think probably it would be it must have been just after it had come out, and I think Phil Shaw used to um, quote things from it in the Guardian Football Diary. And then I was working in a in an off license in those days in in Old Compton Street in Soho, and a shop opened just down the road. Um, which was a specialist sports bookshop. And I remember going there, it had just opened. It was like a Saturday afternoon after work. Um, and there were all these magazines laid out on the floor, which were, fa- you know, the fanzines were all laid out on the floor. And there was When Saturday Comes, which I'd read about in, in The Guardian probably that morning because the, the football diary was on was in Saturday morning. Um, and so, you know, there was like the, it was When Saturday Comes, Off the Ball, possibly the absolute game as well. Um, and then all these, you know, the late Norienteer and the City Gent and a lot of the the club fanzines. So that, yeah, that was when I first came across it. And I remember it must have been quite early on because I remember one of the first articles that I read was, it was a sort of a thing about the TV coverage of the 86 World Cup, I'm pretty sure. So that must have been, you know, must have been very early on. Um, I, it would be 1988 and I was in Virgin Megastore um, browsing probably looking for, I don't know, what was it into then? Cold Cut, Public Enemy, uh, I don't know, looking for looking around there and, and wandered into the the kind of um, the books mag section and saw this this magazine. I don't know, was it was it Pele on the cover? I can't remember. Anyway, I'd start flicking through this magazine and it was literally like uh, yeah, I mean it sounds like an awful kind of American self helpy cliche. It felt like coming home. You know, but it was, oh my God, there are people actually who think like I do. Next up, contributors Barney Roney, now The Guardian's chief sports writer, then David Stubbs and Joyce Woolridge. Well, I suppose I was quite an early reader. Um, I remember reading it in the late 80s. It was something that was always around uh, in the newsagents and friends would have it. People would pass you a copy and it kind of, in my head, sat alongside people like David Lacey and The Guardian as things that I wanted to read and for people to sort of tell me what was going on. It was where I sort of felt like I was 
hearing some other truth that was slightly different to Elton Wellsby on ITV or Des Lynham on Grandstand and seemed to speak a completely different language, one that kind of sounded like human beings speaking. So in, in terms of the football landscape of the day, it just it was impossible not to feel that WSC stood out. I had just joined Melody Maker as a staff writer in 1987. And um, essentially what I quickly realised is that the real meeting, the real office was down the pub at a particular table that we had. And one afternoon, I remember we were passing around, you know, magazines and somebody got hold of a copy of When Saturday Comes. And I think it had been around for a year at this point. And we were just, you know, <laughs> you know there was me and an, and an editor, a guy called Steve Sutherland. And we were both football fans as well as music fans. And I think, you know, we were just sort of flabbergasted by it that, that, that such a publication could exist, you know, that had a very similar sort of sense of wit um, and sensibility to the music press, um, especially perhaps enemy in the early 80s. Um, you know, and it was clear that these people, you know, were very much into their football, but, um, you know, they also knew about their kind of post-punk, they knew about their half-man, half half-biscuit. You, you, know, you really kind of felt that because it wasn't just a case of being enthusiastic about this music or sport or whatever as i say what comes of it is a certain arch a certain sensibility um and when saturday comes appeared to have that in droves there was a particular feature they did i think it was called 10 things you never knew about arsenal and arsenal and my team and um i was tickled by it nonetheless you know um and also i think the kind of satire represented on the kind of slightly iconoclastic attitude towards so-called big clubs as well i used to buy it to read on the train isn't that the oscar wilde thing you know you should always have something sensational to read on the train, but it's a diary, isn't it, rather than a mag. So I used to read it on the train, and it used to be a big thing to read when Saturday comes on the train, you know, kind of sitting there proudly with it because it was showing that you were kind of, you know, not cool, but that you were an alternative football fan, you know. So I think that's when I became aware of it. And, and also some where, the college where um, I came to work, in the in in the nineties, there were people there who were Yeovil Town supporters, and watched and also watched a lot of other people who watched a lot of non-league football, and they all had when they come to its kind of marker, you know, that you had the the mag. And now Taylor Parks, and then Al Needham, who along with David Stubbs run the podcast Chart Music. Well, I was living out in the sticks, um, and I'd been away from football for a few years. I'd been away from football for most of my teens when I was about eleven decided I couldn't be bothered with it anymore. This was the early 80s and the quality was very low and I was too young to go to games on my own. There was no one there to take. And I'd lost interest in playing because I wasn't that good and I was just this slow, not very hard kid who could only pass the ball. That was the only thing I could do. Um, It was my only skill. And nowadays, if you've got a kid like that, you say, oh, he's excellent. He can only play as part of a midfield three, though. But there was no such thing in those days. If you weren't hard enough to be a sort of a snappy central midfielder. Uh, you couldn't tackle, so you couldn't be a fullback, and you weren't quick enough for the wing. There was no place for people like me. So <laughs> you just went home and took your ability to put corner kicks in an actual area with you. Also, I got very into music, so I dropped football for a few years, which was easily done back then, especially as the sort of the meathead culture around it was so strong, certainly in my school. Um, and in football media. Then about 88 or 89, I very suddenly got back into it. I think I was just watching TV and a match came on, and I realised I couldn't remember why I'd stopped watching football. 
I was watching, it was like if you hadn't had a Satsuma for about five years and then you had one and you were thinking, well, this is great. What was I thinking? And your consolation is just you've only missed the five bleakest, darkest years in Satsuma history. But uh, yeah, so but a few years later, you know, you get hungry for, you know, you want to read about, you want to read about your interests, you know, and if only there were some football media that was not part of this meathead culture or this sort of, you know, mustachioed golf sweater culture. And our local news agent sold WSC and a friend of mine read it. And as soon as I started buying it, it was obvious there'd at least been a break in the clouds. I mean, in the 80s, I was I was well into fanzine culture, but also really disinterested in football. Um, by about 84, I just had enough of it because, you know, as anyone of a certain age can remember, football, going, going to see football was horrible in in the 80s. And I, I just had enough. I just thought that there are better ways to spend a Saturday than, um, you know, standing on the Trent and wondering if someone's going to punch me in the back of the head for no reason at all. So I drifted out of football, but I got into fanzines. I liked the idea that someone had sat down and pieced something together uh, and, and wasn't particularly worried that they didn't have desktop publishing or anything like that. And I actually started my own fanzine up in the mid-80s, uh, but it was uh, it was about American football because I, I was just so off football, I'd kind of like drifted off into American sport. So when Saturday Comes came out, and I picked it up. It reminds, looking back on it now, it reminds me of Viz. You know, I, I hold the two magazines in my mind at the same time because, I mean, Viz had been going since the early 80s, but I only got hold of it in about 1986. And like when Saturday comes, you, you just picked it up and looked at it and, and, and immediately thought, oh my God, these people get it. These people kind of understand me. And when I read when Saturday comes for the first time, it's, oh God, the the people here, there's people here who, who aren't dickheads uh, and are a bit like me. And, you know, they're into football. I mean, people forget that, you know, there was a time when you got to a certain age and you had to pick between football and music. You couldn't like both of them. That that was very suspect. And, you know, if you discussed football with your, 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 your kind of like your music mates, they'd look down on you and vice versa. So the idea that, that someone was taking music fanzine culture and putting it onto football that, you know, that, that interested me. And because of when Saturday comes, I got back into football again. Harry Pearson graduated from reader to writer via the magazine's letters pages. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the, the letter was, I, I used to share a flat with a Czech guy called Andre Toman, who I'm still good friends with. He lives in Northern Ireland now. And, um, we used to play Subutio every night like after work. We used to play Subutio. You know, this is a, our lives were filled with culture, um, and so I think at that point there was a, there was a it was at a point when there was some sort of dispute with, between maybe ITV and BBC over over TV rights, um, and so we wrote a letter offering offering exclusive coverage to when Saturday comes of the Anglo Czech Subutio League um, for several thousand pounds. Um, and my, my friend Andre said, "What we put at the end, we'll put this. Um, there's a Czech proverb: a sparrow in your hand is better than a pigeon on your gatepost. So I think, uh, uh, so we put that in Czech at the bottom, 
And I, as subsequently knowing Andy, I would realise that the, the, the Czech proverb would appeal to him with his interest in his interest in Central Europe. And then, I, then you know, I think the first article I wrote actually, I found I, I was digging. I've got um I've got this kind of um, the the Harry Pearson archive, which is in two plastic tubs under my bed, and I've been I've been looking in it. And the first article that I wrote um, was an article that was sort of based on the old, if people would remember this far back, when, when I was at school, there used to be this thing called Longman's Audiovisual French, where you got like a, there was a sort of cartoon, and then they played a tape as well that you repeated. And so it was basically, it was an idea of that, but it was it was teaching French people English, but it was all sort of out of date. So it was like going to a football match and the language that, you know, the sort of phrases that you would need to, to know, such as you know, I favour the I favour the men from the land where cotton is king. Play up, Burnley, play up. You see, so that was a, that was a, anyway. I found anyway. I found the letter that I received from Andy when I sent this article in, and it says, uh, "Dear Harry, thanks for the article. We'll use it in one of our summer issues, probably the next one, number twenty nine. But in actual fact, it didn't get used in number twenty nine because as Andy then subsequently wrote to me, the guy who was meant to be the illustrator of it had selfishly broken his arm." Anyway, he then goes on to say that they would put when Saturday Guns were putting together stuff for an annual to be released at Christmas, and if I would be interested in contributing to that. And then it says, drop us a line if you would like any more details. Apologies for writing in felt tip. I couldn't find a biro. Uh, so there you are. So that one regards Andy Lyons. So there you are. So that was my first. That was, so that must have been in about, I think, and this is a sort of funny thing to me, I think that was in about April in 1989. So it was. So I remember being very excited about getting this letter, and I was packing up because um, I was moving flats, and it was a Saturday afternoon, and I was listening to the FA Cup semi final, and of course it was April the fifteenth, so it was the Hillsborough um, disaster. So th- this letter I sort of got around the same time, I'm pretty sure. So the two things are kind of slightly kind of mixed up in my mind. Now, writers Cameron Carter, Al Needham, and Barney Roney on their own early contributions. I don't. Even though when I started writing, I do remember getting um, a rejection letter from Andy Lyons. It was on headed paper, very courteous. I'd, um, I'd written him a, a terrible article about um, you know what how football fans or how football fans will their behaviour will change uh, when if and when cannabis starts to become a, a very popular drug. It was just based on nothing. And it, I, I'd, I'd, I'd not gone to many football matches at that time, just at Arsenal's. I don't, I'd never really taken many drugs. And I had just made this up, you know, while off work, you know, unemployed, and sent it into him on a really old typewriter ribbon, which I was too tight to replace on a typewriter. And it's, I can remember it now, it's really faded writing and, and uh, type. And he, about two weeks later, I got this really rather polite refute, yeah, rejection just saying it's not right for this at this time and I cannot remember the first article I got in at all but it was about a couple of years after that maybe in the mid-90s I think so I wrote a piece about how I started going to football games standing on the Trent end and how everything started getting really grim and uh, it was essentially about a, a, a match between West Ham in the early 80s when I was walking down to the station and a load of obvious West Ham fans turned up outside the station and started asking the police how to get to the Trent end. The inevitable fight kicked off. And this was the time when they had the uh, the fencing up in the stands. So I ended up climbing over the fence and um, kind of like essentially fell off the fence 
got my foot tangled in the net. Um, Pete Shilton just standing there looking at me. And by 1997, I was working for Richard Desmond on his grot mags. So I, I was in magazines, but they, they were never considered proper magazines to me. So the, when the piece appeared in When Saturday Comes, with an, with an amazing Tim Bradford illustration, I just remember looking at it and it, I mean, I mean, every journalist will always tell you about the first time they saw the name in print and how, you know, it's actually the pinnacle of their career and everything else is, is, is never going to be as good as that. And that's how I felt when I saw my piece in When Saturday Comes. It's like, oh, right, I'm an actual journalist now. Well, like many people who first got in touch and started writing with WC, my first contact was... Uh, I guess an email to Andy Lyons out of the blue that I never expected to get any response to because nobody ever responds to anything. Uh, but weirdly enough, he actually responded to in a courteous and fairly sort of like normal sounding manner, which um, was most unusual for a start. And I think I was um, I was just a, another reader who wanted to write something. And obviously, the, the 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 great thing about WSC is that if you have something you want to say, they're actually if it's interesting, they might even print it. You never know. Um, so my that was my first experience. I think the first thing I ever did was I wrote a piece about Gaza on the TV um, at, uh, could it even have been Euro 2000? I'm not sure. He definitely did a punditry stint. And one of the features they had was him uh, going to Trafalgar Square and jumping in the fountain, so more or less on his own, Sort of bouncing around, being being gone, be Gaza for a bit, and it was all really odd at the time, and seems odd probably in retrospect. And so I, I wrote a thing about that, and I saw it again recently, and um, it, it was surprisingly good, and probably better than most of the stuff I've written since, which is probably no doubt down to the editing. But I remember it really clearly and being amazed to see my own name and, and words in this magazine I've been reading for so long. Next. Taylor Parks, and then current When Saturday Comes assistant editor, Vion Thomas. I think it was about 2002. It was a handful of old Melody Maker writers, including me, had discovered the WSC message board, and we were sort of uh, making a nuisance of ourselves on there. Um, so by this point, we started doing bits for the magazine, probably at like a pub meetup for the message board regulars, because it was in those cosy days of the internet. And I think I met Andy through that so it made sense for all the people on the message board who were also professional writers to start writing for when Saturday comes so most of us did uh David Stubbs was another one I think I mostly did book reviews at first which were nice and easy because most of these books first of all were not a difficult read and you could get through them quite quickly and they rather invited gentle mockery and it was quite easy because just a couple of carefully chosen quotations could raise as many laughs as anything you'd come up with yourself. But it was great because we'd grown up in the old music press in the days where you weren't told what to write or, you know, you weren't told you should assume the readership was thick or ignorant, which is absolutely something that you would be told on some magazines. And we read WSC because it was in that tradition. So we were only too happy to write for it for the same reason. That was in 2011 and it was a piece I co-wrote with um, a 
colleague on a project I'd been working on after university, a research project about uh, football statues. Uh, and kind of part of the reason we'd started doing that project was because we thought, oh, we, we might be able to write something for WSC. So that was quite exciting when, when we actually had enough to say about it and then it got accepted. So that was a real buzz. I remember getting the subscription copy in the post and, and obviously it was in it. So that was that was exciting that it was actually in it. Uh, and then a few days later, when it was in the shops, going and looking at it in the shops as well, uh, and it was in that one as well, uh, and moving all the all the copies to the front of the shelf, which I still do now. An impossible choice, perhaps, but I asked a number of people who make the magazine happen which WSC articles or items stand out in their memories. First, Deputy Editor Tom Hocking, then David Stubbs, followed by Taylor Parks. Well, obviously, I've got everything we published, Dan, is is, is wonderful um, and, <laughs> and it's all of the highest quality. But there, there are ones that stick out. Ian Priest wrote a fantastic piece, a really poignant piece about um, being a Nottingham Forest fan standing on the cop on the day of the Hillsborough disaster. Um, and he painted this picture of he, he got in the ground early um, and um he saw another a Liverpool fan at, on the Leppings Lane end who was just sitting on the floor reading a programme much like he was doing um, and that he doesn't know whether that person survived or not and I think that's a pretty the, the power of that image of just watching a fan at, at the other end of the ground and you don't know whether they survived or not afterwards is really it stayed with me all this time I, I think that Hillsborough coverage was absolutely um it, 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 it was almost, I mean, obviously it was a, a tragedy. It was a kind of a grim vindication, I think, for something that when Saturday comes is very much about was contempt for supporters and the cover in which everybody is kind of fielding the blame. And then these supporters say, oh, well, I suppose it's our fault again, isn't it? And I mean, you think, you know, that the tragedy was compounded, I mean, you know, the, by the insult of what, you know, of the sun and the sun's coverage. And I know, and it wasn't just the sun. I mean, I had private conversations with people over the years, in fact, you know, about football and when they were and fans in Liverpool, but there was still a residual contempt for football fans and um, also particularly Liverpool football fans, for some particular reason, that people who wouldn't dare say these things in public said them in private. That, um, and, and I think that given that there was that residue of doubt about what actually happened there, even among people that were considered themselves kind of, you know, fairly left-leaning liberal. But um, I think that it was that, that when Sassy comes got in there really, really early. I think in terms of like um, the, the tragedy, the reflection on it, you know, where blame might well lie. And I think that um, many years on, all of that eventually, after you know, as you know, sort of long battle in the courts was you know that, that that was vindicated i always like all the cartoons all the cartoonists who work regularly for when saturday comes are brilliant in one way or another uh, and it's it's so easy to do unfunny football cartoons and yeah they all just have a style where you just laugh as soon as you look at it which is quite impressive the thing i remember being most amused by ever I can only half remember. It must have been about 1992 or so, around the time I started reading the magazine, which I think purported to be footballers talking about their dreams or something like this. It was like a humorous piece. And I'm almost certainly uh, misremembering it. But 
I think it was something like Kenny Dalgleish sharing the details of a recurring dream he had where he and Alan Hansen were extremely small and went rowing in a hollow nutshell um, with the skin off an elderberry as their coat. Something like this. And (laughs) it was so unlike anything I'd ever previously seen in the grim world of football humour, right? It wasn't about how someone had a mullet. It was uh, it was uh, genuinely strange and, and funny and imaginative. And I just remember that really convinced me that WSC was the real thing and it was a, a magazine that I could rely on. And now, photographer Colin McPherson, Harry Pearson, Fian Thomas and Tom Hocking again. I think it's really difficult to single out anything in particular that is, you know, you're talking about 400 issues now. Um that is a I've been I've been weighing that question up since you asked me a while ago, and I, I honestly say, you know, I just I just like the regularity as the, and the consistency of it. So I mean, Harry Pearson's work is just you know peerless, pardon the kind of semi pun there, um, and I, you know I always gravitate to what he says, and I always love what I love about. It. I've, I've done match of the months with Harry, and I always read that it always seems to be raining in his world, and yet. He just brings the sunshine out. It's just great. And I just love I love reading Harry's stuff. And as I say, the TV stuff. But we've got so, so many great writers, um, you know, people that are maybe not nationally recognisable like Barney Roney or, or Harry Pearson, but they just they have a great way of crafting um, their stories and their articles. And, yeah, I mean, I've been very lucky to work with a lot of them. So I think it would be bit unfair to single out too many individuals but I just have done but yeah um I think really I mean well Phil Borley who's still a sort of sporadic contributor I think um he wrote a piece which I remember from you know really in the early days of when Saturday comes he'd been an English uh, teacher out in Peru and he wrote a fantastic piece about sort of Peruvian football culture um, you know, because he was obviously teaching Peruvian kids, so he sort of saw the fact that they, the only English player that they really liked was Chris Wardle because he did tricks and that they were more interested in the tricks and the trickery of football than they were actually in the results. You know? um, so that was a fantastic article. I remember also an article by a guy called Phil Douglas who wrote a piece about Alan Foggan, which probably was one of the things that sort of inspired me to write because I remember reading it and thinking a bit sort of slightly like, well, I could, oh, well, then I could do something, you know. Um, and that that included the the uh, Middlesbrough the Middlesbrough deck of cards, the Borough deck of cards, which was, a, I don't know who did that, but it was like when I see the nine, it reminds me of the number of pints Alan Foggan drinks before a match. And when I see the 10, it reminds me of the number of pints Alan Foggan drank before a match. So that, you know, so that was, uh, you know, I really enjoyed that. And I remember, I remember Andy did an article early on as well called A Modest Proposal, in which he's, one of the things that he suggested was that the referee's whistle should be replaced by an alpine horn. There was one last year by Pete Green, who's a, a writer I've always really liked his writing. Um, he's a Grimsby fan. And he wrote about um, the floodlights at Blundell Park, which had been taken down sort of without warning. And it was about how the fans were feeling, the sort of loss of the, of the floodlights on the landscape in the town. And it felt like a really nice sort of evocative piece about uh, the role of football in a sense of place. And then the other one, if I'm allowed one that I've written, was um, last year when I went to uh, Steve Earle football programmes. Because uh, I, grew, I grew up in Bungie, which is a, a town on the Norfolk-Suffolk border, which is a 
most famous for being the home of Steedale football programs. And I'd sort of been I'd been past his his warehouse all the time. It's got a little sign outside saying Steedale football programs, and it's, I had no idea what lay over the threshold because it's not open to the public. Uh, but I got to go and interview him, and uh, I got to go in and have a little look around his his shelves and shelves of programs, and that was just quite a quite an exciting thing to do. And then actually, when when people found out I'd been there and when when the article came out there were so many people sort of had it strike a chord with them I think it's one of those sort of very niche niche topics that you would only have that article in WSC. I, I think what I love about WSC is we've also one of my favourite ones was sort of um, a, a writer called John Earls um, on playing he, he ended up somehow ended up playing words with friends uh, with Mick Harford um, so that that's just the complete contrast of um some covering stuff like Hillsborough and then occasionally getting an article in about, you know, a fan who's ended up playing words with friends, which if, if none of you know, it's sort of um, online scrabble on your on your mobile phone uh, against one of his all time heroes and sort of how, how that came about and the words they use. And I think in the end, he let he he, he claims he let Mick Harford win. Um, but I, I don't know if that's still true. You'd have to ask John Earls about that. Um, you know, stuff like that really stays with me as well, because it's it's just so you wouldn't read about that anywhere else. In recent years, one When Saturday Comes article became a favourite of many thousands of readers in print and online. Here then is Taylor Park talking about his review of the book, Love Joy on Football. Well, it was only about 10,000 words um, with a reading age of seven. So it was surprisingly easy to read um, and to keep my mood high. There was always the knowledge that, well, this is probably going to be the easiest review I've ever written. Um, and you got an unintentional laugh on every page. Um, but I mean, I was I was actually in a terrible state at the time. I'd had all sorts of stuff. Go, I mean, like my dad had just died. I'd been really ill. Um, so it is nice in circumstances like that to be presented with a massive punch bag on which you can <laughs> relieve some tension. Uh, but although not that that made much difference to what I actually wrote, which the, the terrible thing about this love joy thing, I don't think it's actually that good. It's not one of the better things I've ever written. Um, but it's, it's another thing that's, that's good for deflating any potential ego problems you might have, right? I could point to articles that I've spent days perfecting, which just nobody gives a damn about. Then there's this sloppy rant, which took about as long to write as it does to read. Uh, I mean, absolutely the easiest and quickest thing I've ever done. Um, and it really is just wellying into an open goal from one inch out. Uh, and it's it's been read more times than everything else I've ever written put together. So, you know, yeah, fair play. Did you hold back on anything? Not consciously, but it's always the same. Whenever you do a real naught out of 10, uh, you look back later and you think, actually, this is worse than I made it sound. Because nobody wants to sound hysterical, you see, unless that's your style. Nobody wants to sound like they're, you know, their head's exploding behind the keyboard. It's not... It's, people don't feel confident when they're reading that. Um, so you've got to maintain a bit of composure. Uh, but yeah, sometimes you look back and think, yeah, you know, might, might actually have low-balled this. <laughs> Why do you think it's so popular? And did you ever hear from Lovejoy? No, I never heard from him, uh, <laughs> funnily enough. Well, like he got hold of my address and sent a bloke round. <laughs> Mr That's Lovejoy would for. like to have a word with you. Uh, no, um, 
had that happened, I would have fancied my chances, though. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm, yeah, I'm saving. You wait till you see my upcoming article, Why UFC is a Sport for Weeds. Uh, <laughs> no, I was told you wrote uh, a new introduction to the second edition of the book, which carefully addressed some of the negative criticism by saying, uh, in essence, nya, 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 nya. No one likes your silly magazine. I'm rich and you're not, which is, you know, you have to say is very hard to argue with. Um, and surely the just the fact that there was a second edition of this book, you know, it, it leaves you in no doubt of your place in the natural order of things. Uh, but, I mean, it's obvious why it was popular is because so many people intensely dislike Tim Lovejoy. And it's another thing, as I say, that, that to deflate your ego that, I don't really like writing that plays to the gallery and just, you know, whether it's cultural or political or anything, and just presents people with, you know, what they already think expressed in an amusing way, right? So they sort of could share it on social media and say, genius, or nailed it, or something like that. I don't like, I don't think it's good. It um, just glues people to their preconceptions and just flatters all their lazy assumptions, and it's a cheap and destructive way to make a living. But, of course, when you do something which does precisely that, um, you oh, great, it's a takedown of, of Tim Lovejoy, and it goes mildly viral. What can you say, you know? It's like you, you just, okay. You, but, I mean, just don't try and kid yourself that people love it because of you, you know. They love it because it's what they already thought, which is that Tim Lovejoy is a bellend. Uh, just so happens that on this occasion, all of us were objectively correct. Finally, for part one, when Saturday comes publisher Rich Guy, Harry Pearson and Andy Lyons on whether the magazine of today stands for what it did in 1986. Yeah, I think it does, yes. Which is kind of recognition that, that, that fans are a really important part of football and their treatment. Uh, is sometimes questionable. What, what's changed in that time is that that when the magazine started out, football fans was were seen as evil pariahs um, who just went around hitting people, which obviously wasn't true. Um, stadiums were falling down and what have you, which obviously was true. Yeah. Um, nowadays, stadiums are in the main space-age structures, uh, and, and fans are now perceived, uh, certainly by a, a large portion of the media, as a, a sort of weird, weird football obsessives uh, who, who paint their house in their team colours and, and, and what have you, name their kids after the uh, 1996 League Cup winning team or what have you. Uh, and I think that the magazine's position is, 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 has always been somewhere between the two. Uh? They're not happy lunatics and they're not violent thugs either they're on the whole normal people uh, and obviously football has its structural problems as well um, which again have uh, were often caused by not enough money and are now caused by too much money so we kind of sit ourselves in the middle yeah I think it does yeah I think it still has the same sensibility and it doesn't sort of follow you know the, in newspapers now there's a great it seems like there's a great kind of clamor of um of sort of like I don't know what really sort of adulation, which when Saturday comes has never had, as we say, you know that the you know that there's always been an edge of cynicism and pessimism amongst amongst the writers and the fans, and I think you know that's something that I don't really see in the mainstream media, which is which when Saturday comes is always maintained. It's maintained its air of pessimism, that <laughs> its youthful air of pessimism has continued in the middle age. I think we've 
WSC has probably changed less than the football industry has changed. I mean, when we began, football was still a relatively small business in the UK. No satellite TV or clubs owned by large corporations. Now, of course, it's become part of that global corporate world. So when, when, once WSC became a full-time job for a few people, which is 1988, it's, it's, it's been run as a business since, but only on a small scale. I mean, we earn enough to pay staff wages and hopefully to pay our tax bills, but we've never made much of a profit beyond that. I think it's also still the case that our readers as they did in 1986, the people who follow football as a whole, even if they support a particular team, a team at the top level, they take an interest in what's going on in general, set in football, so, and they go to games regularly rather than uh, just watching it on TV. Um, I think at the start, perhaps we were a bit defensive about football in the way I felt it, it needed to be protected to some extent, whereas now, certainly in regard to top-level football, it's like we've gone the other way in the sense that we're now sometimes more sceptical of how it's being um, hyped up. Um, I think if we'd had investment from the first issue, I don't think we would have survived more than a few years because investors wouldn't have made enough money quickly enough. So being independent has allowed us to make all our own decisions. Um, nowadays, I think we don't wouldn't really, we don't really make enough money for a potential owner to be interested. Really, I think we'll only ever appeal to a certain proportion of people who follow football, which is fine. Um, but and most people are happy to receive their information and commentary from I suppose more mainstream sources but we've we've managed to retain an audience for over 30 years so we've a certain amount of loyalty among our readers and um, early on we used to get contacted by quite a few people who were writing theses for college about zine culture and I used to, my regular joke that I used to say was one day there'll be this book the rise and fall of when Saturday comes Oxford University Press Oxford University Press 2020 I used to pick 2020 as a date for some reason so we've still got another six months to be proved wrong about that um, but I think in general, every time we get through months about being told to piss off is a triumph. You've been listening to the When Saturday Comes podcast, produced and edited by me, Daniel Gray. Please have a think about supporting us on patreon.com slash whensaturdaycomes, which will give you access to bonus podcast material and other goodies. And do join us next time for part two of this podcast special, marking 400 issues of When Saturday Comes magazine. Make sure you never miss an issue of When Saturday Comes by subscribing today. Not only will you have the magazine delivered to your door and save on the shop price, but you'll also receive discounts on books and t-shirts, plus get free access to our complete digital archive, which stretches all the way back to issue one in 1986. Go to shop.wsc.co.uk for more information. Hey, what do you think you're playing at? Come here. Please give us a few stars and a good review on the Apple Podcast app or elsewhere, for instance, in graffiti on a bridge over the M23. OK, I'll leave it up to you and we'll settle up later. Will you be needing anything else, love? No, with this lot and a bit of luck, we'll be fine.